For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. that we record a welcome <laughs> uh, in the cloud and on the ground bodhisattvas everywhere is this the first time for anyone sitting here with us who's that I'm Dave. Dave Dave you from Lincoln Square or yeah, no, I'm sorry St. John Indiana wow oh, well welcome okay. anyone else in the room I can't see very well Ah, there. Garth, is it? Yes. Hi, welcome. Thank you. How about cloud folk? James online. Yeah. Hi, James. James, and you're joining us for our sitting, correct? That's right. Yeah, for our, our retreat. James. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can. Welcome. Welcome. So some of you may have noticed that we're in the midst of a one-day sitting here at Ancient Dragon. Uh, so some of us have been sitting since a little bit earlier, and we'll sit and practice together this wondrous Dharma practice on this bright fall day in Chicago and in the cloud. I don't know what the weather is up there, but... Um, we form one practice body together. I would like to just uh, continue an exploration of our practice of zazen, our sitting practice, as a liberation of the senses in shikantaza, in our practice of just sitting. However, first, I think it would be important to acknowledge that we sit on this beautiful day in this cozy zendo. And we are sitting also in a world with the tragedy of the current, current wars, not just one, but at least two big ones externally. Maybe there's some wars internally, but in this, war in our world is a senseless loss of life, senseless grief and suffering of so many people and of our great land. And I hope our practice brings us to our senses, wakes us up. And this coming to our senses is really facing our life in its fullness in its totality. So I hope our practice, our awakening practice, encourages peace and sanity in this difficult time and also in easy circumstances. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy to become insane in very comfortable circumstances. So may our zazen hearts and minds benefit our world, every being in place. 
So shikantaza or just sitting is our style, our Zen family style here at Ancient Dragon of sitting meditation. And the shikantaza is a gateway to boundless wholeness, a gateway awakening our hearts, our consciousness, our bodies, and our senses. I don't know about you, but I've noticed in myself that when things get uncomfortable or difficult or I am threatened, my sense of self, who I am, my identity, or my sense of some kind of personal safety is threatened, there's a tendency to go into fight or flight mode. Shut down. So when stressed, it's easy to lose one's cool. All of a sudden, decades of Zen practice out the window. You get distracted, try to control things, want to hide from things, fight against reality. And I think you're all here because you have some idea about where that leads. Um, You know, we want to deny reality somehow. If it's not comfortable, or if it's too uncomfortable, or if it's too comfortable, we want more of it, so we want a different kind of reality. Um, A friend of mine was visiting recently from Oregon, and she reminded me of this Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that says, a day without denial is a day you face your life. And our Zen practice is about facing our life in fullness, not the life we think we know, but this totality that is effulgent in every instance in every activity, in everything we smell, taste, touch, feel, think. I also think that a day without numbness, denial, delusion is a day you face your life. A day without anger, hatred is a day you face your life. So I thought I'd tell an old story uh, from an old teaching, Buddhist teaching, called the Bahya Sutta. Anyone familiar with Bahya Sutta? I think David Ray might have heard about it before. (laughs) From you. From me. I think Wade might have heard about it before last night from me. Maybe some other folk online. Some of you erudite Zen students who've dabbled in teachings from old school Zen, the Pali Canon. You may have heard of this. But I keep, you know, I had a thought I want to talk about peace in this talk, but I just kept wanting to talk about the Bahia Sutta because it's so beautiful. This old school from Buddhist time teaching. So it starts out like this. You know, thus I have heard Buddha was staying in Savati near Jetta's Grove 
at Anapatindaka's monastery, all these words, uh, Sanskrit words. And on that occasion, Bahia of the Bark Cloth. So our main character here is Bahia of the Bark Cloth. So this was this uh, very attained ascetic who lived by the seashore. So, you know, Buddha was hanging out a little, I don't know, away from the seashore, about 1,200 miles away from the seashore. But somehow this character Bahia of the Bark Cloth. So I guess Bahia was the first uh, sustainable clothing manufacturer making the cloth out of bark, or at least was part of that community, uh, and was an ascetic. And, you know, just like now, there are lots of people, not only Buddhists, wandering around doing spiritual practices. And Bahia was, quote, worshipped, revered, honored, venerated, given homage, a recipient of clothing, food, lodging, and medical requisites for the sick. And when Bahia was alone in awareness, in seclusion, this line of thinking appeared. This line of thinking might be something you've thought before, in your zazen even. This appeared, this line of thinking appeared to Bahia's awareness. Now, of those in this world who are worthies, who are awakened ones, who are arhats, or who have entered the path of arhatship, of like some special attained being, earth being, am I the one? Am I one of those? Like, I just had this great experience. Like, maybe I'm really enlightened. <laughs> Am I hot or not? Do we see the website? Yeah. <laughs> so, Spahia. Spahia, hot or not? You know, is he, <laughs> is, is he got it or not? Yeah. You run out of sashin. I love the world. Or, I've had this great insight into life. Kind of a sweet question, and it's good to ask that once in a while. But then a goddess appeared who'd once in a former life been a cousin of Bahia of the Bark Cloth. And this Devata was described as compassionate, desiring Bahia's welfare knowing with her own awareness the line of thinking that was arising in Bahia and went to Bahia. <clears throat> so this, this divine being is like, hmm, I think I see some egotism going on here. I better go pay my cousin a visit. So she appeared <clears throat> and said, you, Bahia, are neither an awakened one, nor have you even entered the path of awakening. You don't even have the practice whereby you can become awakened or enter the awakened path. So this is like kind of dousing some cold water on this heat. And uh, but Bahia was unfazed and took this teaching from this divine goddess. and and said, 
Um, and who, who in this world with its devas are awakened and have entered the path of awakening? And she answered, there's a city down about 1,200 miles from here. There's someone <laughs> called Buddha there. And uh, this is truly an awakened one and teaches the Dharma, offers a teaching leading to awakened life. So Bahia, deeply chastened by the Devata, in the space of one night, traveled 1,200 miles and ended up uh, at Sabati, where Buddha was hanging out, at Jetta's Grove in Anattapindaka's monastery. And on that occasion, a large number of monks were doing walking meditation in the open air. What a great thing. You arrive someplace. Imagine like going downtown Chicago and like Grant Park and like there's all these monks doing walking meditation. It's a beautiful scene. Uh, and he went to them and recognized they were monks and, and said, uh, Venerable sirs, I guess, I guess it was, you know, they were, this, this sangha needed to wake up a little that there may be multiple genders involved in walking meditation. Uh, but in this case, the story goes, Venerable sirs, is the blessed one, that's Buddha, the awakened one, rightly awakened one, where is that person now staying? I want to see this person, this rightly self-awakened person. And Bahia said, oh, well, Buddha's gone to town for alms. So, you know, monks in India are gather food from the community. That's how they eat. So Buddha would take this begging bowl and get food in the morning from the community, from the people in the on the street. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe like that would be a great practice for us to offer alms to the people coming with their begging bowls who might look like unhoused individuals or refugees. But anyway, Buddha did this every day to get food. But Bahia ran and found Buddha. Immediately recognized Buddha because the qualities of Buddha were serene and inspiring. Inspiring serene confidence, calming. Bahia saw Buddha's sense of peace, that the mind was at peace, and having attained utmost tranquility and poised, tamed, guarded, and senses restrained. This must be the person I'm looking for, thought Bahia. And Bahia says to Buddha, please teach me. Please teach me the Dharma, for, for this will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. And when this was said, Buddha's like, Bahia, this isn't the time. We've entered the town for our alms, for our food. Uh, but Bahia persisted. Again, Bahia had this kind of cheeky energy, you know. First he's like, am I hot or not? And then he's like, I'm just going to go right up to Buddha and beg for the teaching. I don't care if he's looking for his alms. I don't care if he's busy. I am going to say, ah, please teach me. 
So he does this three times, and finally Buddha has a very difficult time saying no after three-time request. This is known. So uh, he's like, teach me, teach me. And Buddha's like, okay. And this is these are the most famous lines that everyone knows from the Bahya Sutra, if you've heard it before, but they're worth repeating. Then Bahya. And I wonder if like how close they were. Like if Bahya was like on the ground or if they were on equal ground. But the Buddha says to Bahya. You should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, there will be only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. And I think the senses, the other senses, uh, what is it? Smell, taste, and touch are, are in this other sensed because we already had hearing and oh we didn't have and, and seeing mm -hmm. and then in reference to the cognized to the thought only the cognized because you know buddhism our brains our our thoughts are the sixth sense so to speak uh, this is how you should train yourself when for you there will be only the scene in reference to the scene only the herd in reference to the herd, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, only the sense in reference to the sensed, then Bahia, there is no you. In connection with that, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you, No ego, no narcissism, no clinging, no pushing away, no confusion. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder, nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress or the end of suffering just this so you know in Mahayana in our Zen school Mahayana Buddhism we're always talking about just this so here's in the original teachings Buddha is saying just this when we are present without our egos getting in the way how can that happen that's what you explore in Zazen. Um, just hearing these words, Bahia was immediately released from the effluence through lack of clinging, was released from himself getting in the way of just being with whatever is arousing in the world 
So this is our, a basic practice uh, that you can practice. You know, like sometimes I think of my ears, and is the sound coming to my ear, or is the sound coming from my ear? When it's just, just sound. Just this. There was kind of a sad story, which I'll just cut to the end of the story, that Bahia begged <laughs> to be ordained after this great revelation, after hearing these words from Buddha about no self, and uh, went off to, I guess, the local store to purchase the requisite robes and bowls for ordination. And a mother cow with a baby, he crossed paths with this mother cow and a baby, and she ran him down and killed him, protecting her baby. And Buddha still said to the rest of the monks, give, give Bahia a monk's burial. He has practiced the Dharma and did not pester me with issues. <laughs> <laughs> he just straight up requested the teaching, didn't pester me too much. Although he did like, I'm like, he didn't even have time to get Buddha the food that Buddha didn't collect on the alms roll. But nonetheless, fortunately, maybe there was a Tenzo around making lunch. Uh, but said, give, give him a burial, a monk's burial. Um, Bahia, the bark cloth of the bark cloth monks, is unbound, <coughs> free. Uh, so that was, that was the end. So, so actually, this wasn't a tragic death. Apparently, it like, was a fortuitous death because he was already awakened, and then his next lifetime in this old story uh, in the next lifetime, Bahia gets to like be fully awakened, becomes a Buddha or something like that. But I think these points that I just wanted to point out is like, oh, you know, now I really have it. Now I'm somebody in the Dharma. You know, I can sit a sashin or I can eat oryoki or I know all these texts, you know. Blah, 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 blah. So this I, I, me, mine, this obsession with I, is actually sets Bahia on the path. And I love Bahia's openness, like some vision of a goddess comes across and kind of says, sets him straight. And he doesn't say, no, I really am awakened. He's like, oh, well, tell me how I can do that. And keeps inquiring. And this is what we do with each other. We're constantly showing each other where we cling to something or where we're caught in egotism or narcissism, we might say, self-identification. And we wake each other up. And sometimes it's a little unpleasant. You know, you're like, oh, that's a jerk. That Sangha member's a jerk. You know, they didn't tell me what I wanted to hear about myself. But then sometimes you're like, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for showing me where... I still need a little help. And then help me find the way. 
So this needing help and like Bahia doesn't like say, oh, I think I'll go look for the teacher tomorrow after I get some sleep and have a glass of wine or something. You know, Bahia is like, I'm going now, 1,200 miles like overnight. And, you know, we don't all practice like our heads are on fire. But actually, this is the best time to practice, this moment. So don't wait to come to Ancient Dragon. Don't wait for that. Practice in your life, whatever you're doing. Uh, and <laughs> it's okay to make a bold request for the teaching. You know, it takes a lot of humility in some ways to pester the teacher for the teaching a little bit. But I like that Bahia wasn't like saying, well, now, help me elucidate this fine point that I read. You know, no. Bahia's like, teach me, please, what you have to offer. This is how we approach everyone in our practice, everything. You got my little notebook. It says, save the bees. This is the end of suffering, the end of stress. And when we train ourselves thus, that there is only the seen in reference to the seen, the heard in reference to the heard, the sensed in reference to the sense, the cognized in reference to the cognized, then when there is no you, in connection to this, this moment becomes this moment, embracing everyone and everything, then we know. We know that all that we hear, all that we touch, all that we feel, all that we see, all that we smell, all that we drink, is just being at home in the world is liberated from narcissism. This is big mind that Suzuki Roshi talks about. When we meet each particular sound as wholeness, this is the sound of emptiness. You know, in the Genjo Koan, which we'll chant later, it says something like when the Dharma fills your whole body and mind, you know that something is missing. We didn't get something, but what's missing? One thing that's missing is self-involvement. But what we're full of is open-heartedness. And just this, which is never apart from each sound, smell, taste, touch, sight, or idea. This is liberating the sense gates of I, me, mine. What is it? Isn't there like a Sort of Beatles song or George Harrison, all through the night, I be mine, I be mine, I be mine. Do you know the rest of it? It's like something is killing me. This narcissism's killing me. You know. So, and I think like George Harrison was it George Harrison that All Things Must Pass album or something? But but like you know George Harrison also studied with a bunch of like Indian teachers I think too, <clears throat> grew a beard and meditated. But, you know, this is all great. Uh, 
And this is our sitting, our wholehearted sitting. This is freely roaming in samadhi. This is known as peaceful abiding, uh, where there's room for everything, where we welcome things with openness, caring, and flexibility, and we teach each other this practice. We're all Bahia and Buddha together in Sangha. And this is how we can meet the world with a liberated big mind and a tender, caring heart. From this place of wholeness, we'll know how to respond to the suffering and cries of the world. That's my hope. That we'll know how to ease our own broken hearts. And I'm not saying that facing life is easy. So it's hard work. Like sometimes you're sweating on your cushions, you know, trying to maintain attention and get not be sucked in by the pull of ego. Round and round, I mean mine, I mean mine, I mean mine. We try. You know, it takes some work to settle, to settle a little bit. But then in an instant, just like Bahia, we can relax and just be with what is and know know how to face life. So don't be hard on yourself. There's a little ego that you encounter. If you're like, oh, I'm sorry I did that. I was just thinking of myself as a little tiny self unit. That's okay. You might have a little ego lurk in your zazen. It's okay. You know, this bodhisattva life, it's a rough job. (laughs) This practice we do. Somebody's got to do it. And we're elected, I guess, just by coming here. So um, I could say I could talk forever, but it's time to maybe have a little bit of discussion and get on with our day. I just want to thank all of you for being here in the midst of this world with its beauty and terror. So thank you very much. Anybody like to offer and, and same thing on online darkness? Um, offer any responses or your practice of liberating your senses of teaching. Um, James is here. Uh, hi. Um, good morning, everyone. Thank you for that teaching. I, I never heard that sutta, and I liked it a lot. Um, what I thought, can everyone hear me okay? Like, okay. Um, what I What I thought about um, was the idea that um, Sasetic, what was his name? Bahia. Bahia, yeah. um, What what Bahia, um, I think, what what I took from it was that um, he actually was delivered kind of a a big blow to his ego, right? Um, It's like a like a, a really large spiritual setback um i think a lot of times uh you know we kind of grieve for for what we thought uh we had um and sometimes like we like the we find ourselves really weak or you know i and he also goes like 1200 miles uh so um i think it's nice to know that when you find yourself like knowing the least that's sometimes when your biggest uh teachings come 
um, or when you're when you're the most tired. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what I took from that, that kind of idea of like setbacks being uh, kind of the gates to to win. You know, or my, one of my teachers said, um, when we take the last arrow from our quiver of um, like what we know, and, and we're just kind of empty, and we're we're left gasping at straws. Sometimes that's when the best teachings come. Mm. Wonderful, James. Yeah, taking the backward step to go forward. Thank you. We can't see you on the wall because there's so much light in the room, so much radiance that you're very, very um, light. So we were getting some help to try to see you a little better. It's still kind of difficult, but I can see you on my screen. And, you know, this is taking the backward step. It's also, it may seem like a setback, but I'm always a little more nervous when I think I've like, got a hold of something but you know it's hard to wear out to 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 give up but sometimes there's many ways many many ways so thank you very much uh, for sitting with us too today uh nicholas i see or were you just no i should say there, there's a um, phrase that's related to this sutta, and it's uh, bear attention. Yes, that's great. And um, what it is is the, um, it's kind of like cultivating this, this quality of attention that doesn't add anything. Yeah. That, um, so that when you hear sounds, you know, you, you kind of notice all the identifications that happen. Oh. That's a child. Oh, that's a car. Oh, that's, you know, and just and kind of letting go of all that and just directly experience a horn walking. Or the cicadas in the summertime were so wonderful when we would practice here and and, and just um, uh, cultivating a sense of their attention and just really tripping on those sounds, which were incredible. <laughs> Uh, when we would uh, practice Monday nights here, um, and also the, this this sutta really just strikes right at the heart of the practice, which is also identification, and and um, and we get caught by all of the identifications that we make through the senses, and you know it becomes my thoughts, my pain. My story, me, 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 and um, I guess the the final thing I would offer is um, is uh, when you're practicing and you notice pain, notice thinking. Who's thinking? Just ask your little koan. Who's who's feeling? Who's hearing? Who's seeing? Could be interesting. Thank you. Yes, I want to make a plug for bear attention. Uh, and <laughs> I was actually trying to wait about this last night because one of the very first books I read was Nyaponika Thero's book. Uh, I think now it's in the vision of Dhamma, but it's, it's also the heart of Buddhist meditation. And it's kind of written, you know, like in the 50s or something, or even earlier. It sounds kind of old. But, but it, 
it really quotes the Bahia Sutta and it talks about this quality of attention or of samadhi that is not naming and concretizing things. So even the cicadas lose, lose their cicada nests <laughs> in the hearing of just hearing. Uh, and this is a a great practice and it's it is our zazen in so many ways you know we just let whatever arises arise and cease and go through our mind stream so thank you for pointing out bare attention so it's a practice that we don't talk so much about in zen but i think it's you know it's all one vehicle of teaching I, I for one am very grateful for my ego and all of the clinging and all of the suffering <laughs> that that's caused me. Um, because like Bahia, just being totally miserable let me here. And now I have this wonderful chance to practice with all of you. And it's been such a blessing in my life. But for me at least, I think for other people, you you do, as James was saying, have to empty out your quiver. You don't have to get to the end of your rope and be like, wow, I just can't keep doing this anymore. Something has to change. Like the self-involvement cannot continue. And, and so uh, thank Buddha for my narcissism. <laughs> Yes, so ultimately, in one suchness, the narcissism and awakening are the same in oneness, but there's a little bit of a difference which we can discover. And when you relate to the narcissism as just narcissism, <laughs> to our ego is just ego, a little pet. You know, but it's just ego, just like the sound is just sound. That shifts something as opposed to being driven. You know, we might be supported and guided by our vows, by the precepts, by our practices, but there's a difference between being driven by impulses and insanity, senselessness. So we come to our senses. We wake up to life, and that includes our egos. But we take care of them just like we take care of our favorite pet or our loved ones or our world with all of its difficulty and all of its joy. Hopefully. Anyone else? Like um, Nicholas? Are you I just want to say I was a big fan of the Are You Hot or Not? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love There's, that you brought that in. I, you know, I've never seen the website, I'll confess, but I did read this article in the New Yorker by Andrew, Bor- Andrew Borvik, which was Andy Borvik, which is like a whole riff on the hot or not. You know, it was really fantastic if you find it someplace. Just like that Calvin and Hobbes cartoon on 
No. A day without denial is a day you face your life. Oh, is there someone else? I have one. Ah, Michael. Hello. Hi. Thank you for this. I appreciate the wrapper of fight or flight and those moments of practice. Um, I can hear you. Wow. My sound went crazy. Um, sorry, I don't know if you heard that. Um, my question's about in relation to no self in my practice, I've sometimes made the mistake of going into no self in a way that might hurt the self. Mm. Uh, One might, uh, call it maybe a close evil of the bodhisattva kind of throwing the self down for the other um, when in fact, maybe the dharmic stance would be to fight. And I'm very curious about that tension, the, that kind of close evil of no self and well, where is the human in our, in our Zen? Where is that? Where is that human? Mm-hmm. Um, Particularly in relation to worldly dharmas, loss and gain, mind, I think. It's a real tension for me right now. <clears throat> I don't I'm know what that is. Um, with that. Sorry? I'm happy you're practicing with it. Yeah. And <laughs> so the other side of selfishness is selflessness that doesn't take care of the self. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, it's nutty. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, this is you know, sometimes we think I'm a good person if I'm just giving up everything for everybody else but you're not including yourself in that equation. So totality includes everyone, including ourselves. And how to, how to relate to that, how to respond appropriately is a great question. And only you can know in your life what that means. You can always check yeah. it with someone else too. Mm-hmm. Thank you. No, oh, thank you. Paula. Mine's a little more mundane. But I was wondering if you could speak to your understanding of the mind as one of the senses that equates to hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting. Um, So the majority of our brain is taken up with sense information. And the mind, what we think of as mind consciousness, you know, it's just another way of putting together information, different kind of information packet. That's how I see it. You know, and I mean, 
mind is such a tricky word for us because it encompasses so many things. But I think of this as a discursive mind, the mind that's categorizing, the mind that's running a narrative, the mind that's trying to understand. And all of these things, minds and senses, are essential and important and helpful until they're not. And we're so driven by our minds. In some ways, at Ancient Dragon, we might say, you know, like for some of us, our minds are this big and all of our senses are this big, even though our brain wants to, you know. So I think opening our senses, you know, we tend to contract when we're uncomfortable, when we're too cold, when we're scared. And we do that with all of our senses. So I say open them up. So I think I'm, you know, our minds can, yeah, that's, it's just another way of processing information. And I don't think that, you know, some scientists might find some other ways of categorizing our sensorium. That's cool. This is just kind of a nice made up. Somebody made this up. Buddha made this up. We're making it up. But it's, it's a way to try to understand our experience because we're in human bodies with uh, brains. Does that help? Yeah. Well, all the senses take place in the brain. That's right. Well, that, that's it. Because yeah. right. if the brain just in addition to, or it does it function by itself, like the, the sense of smell can't function without the brain categorizing what that information was. And we know that each individual perceptually will take the same information and the mind forms it in some way. Some of it's relatively similar. Some of it isn't, especially that discursive thought. That That is what could be extremely different yeah. for each individual. Right. So I, I know I try not to get too caught up on it, though, mm-hmm. for that very reason. Like once you really start talking about it, you can make yourself crazy. What's super interesting, though, is that our senses are much more expansive than we are aware of. And that was part of my thinking. Like, does the mind serve as an intake without the other senses? And in some ways, I feel the body does, period, with, yeah. even though the other senses are part of the body. Yeah, the body is this kind of feeling, but there are many, many ways we can kind of parse it out. But all of it functions together in some way. I didn't bring it, but there was this quote I read by Helen Keller. Mm-hmm. who was born without, what, sight and hearing, and she couldn't speak. And she wrote something like, um, experience everything in your senses like it was the last moment of life. And I think that in all the senses, so experience it all fully, But, you know, a lot of times we try to control. We want only pleasant sounds, you know. We only want pleasant sights or we want really ugly sights because we're kind of in a depressed mood. You know, we're trying to control things. But to be open to everything is our practice. So, yeah. Kirsten? I'm really partial to the octopus. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love it as this intelligent alien on Earth. Can people hear Kirsten online? Uh, yes, yeah, thank up. you. Mm-hmm. 
I still find them tasty too, but I, <laughs> I might get past that hopefully. And the octopus's brain is embedded on its skin, mm -hmm. so its entire nervous system is its brain. And I was reminded of this last night when you spoke of the human capacity to sense a photon. Yeah. But it wasn't time really to talk about octopus. And I, I really kind of rejoice in the fact that the senses no, can do so much more than our cognitive mind is aware. Um, I think it's one of the greater parts of being human because that sensory experience is what connects us to non-humans too. Mm. So thank you. Thank you for bringing up the octopus. I don't really know much about octopuses except, you know, like they have multiple hearts too, right? Yeah. Like they're, you know, and there was that movie, what was octopus that? Octopus Teacher. Yeah, Octopus Teacher, you know, so. We welcome them. Tom. Just as an extension yeah. of that, yeah. it's, it's correct to speak of the epidermis, the top layer of the skin, as an undifferentiated sense organ. Yeah. All kinds of information all the time mm -hmm. perceived by the epidermis. Yeah. Our skin's an organ. Mm -hmm. Oh, back here I can't see. Did you have a comment? Nastasha? Hi. Um, Hi. I am wondering, I, I don't know, maybe this is something I, I just don't know, which is fine. I'm okay with not knowing, but where is, uh, when we talk about mind, we talk about senses, well, Zen talks about mind and senses. Where do we, where is emotion and where is heart, where is love in all of this equation? Is that, did you guys already talk about that and I just missed it? <laughs> <laughs> Love is the way. Well, that's the answer and all that stuff, but okay. Love is the way. So if we read and practice all of this, this is only to help us feel love fully. If we don't, there's something wrong. And so maybe love is like some kind of extrasensory thing, but this is how we learn to love fully. And it is with some sadness, I feel, that in Zen, we don't talk about love enough or very much. It's somehow we want to label it as compassion, which is great. Compassion is really nice. But the tenderness of love and the power of love is all that we're really trying to embody with all of our senses. So when we really love something, we just see it as, as a scene. We see it without ego. When you hold a baby or take care of some cherished object, we can sort of get a sense of that. But when that extends everywhere without any impediment, that's that's our practice. So thank you for bringing that up.
understand. Um, I, I kind of wanted to think about um, when you're in a tough spot and it's fight or flight. Yeah. I don't think it has to be fight or flight. Um, I'm thinking of a particular uh, of a particular time when I felt I was in a very bad spot. Um, my 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 physically closest neighbor was old and fragile, and she'd gotten sick, and her family had sold her apartment while she was very sick, and when she got well. She didn't remember signing the papers and selling the apartment. And um, her grandson brought her to the apartment, and I was there. And um, she thought she was going to be moving back home. Um, I did not want to be there for that. Um, I really did the wrong thing. I mean, I was, I just wanted to get away. It was That's not, right. it was not my family. It was not my problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what I did. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, that's got, right. just got away from it. No. And, um, common. I feel very strongly that what my, what my neighbor needed at that time was someone to say, this is really terrible and I know that you, that it's a terrible blow to you and you must feel really, really sad that this has happened and you have to accept the fact that you can't move back to your apartment. Mm -hmm. I didn't do that. I, you know, I didn't try to sympathize with her. And I do have to say, she's she was never a very sympathetic person. I mean, you know, sure. she wasn't somebody I loved or anything. Mm -hmm. You just did love her. <sighs> and even just saying, this is what she needed. And I'm sorry I didn't do that. Or I couldn't do it at the time. But you actually began to know. And that's, that's our practice. We don't always do things according to perfect planning, you know, this is where we make mistakes, and then we say, oh, but I do know how to love, I did know what she needed, and most of us actually, we know what's needed, but something gets in the way, and this is why we practice, so. Could I tell one other, uh, I, I had a, I have a, had a granddaughter, I have a granddaughter, but when she was 18 months old, I was left alone with her. And she did not want to be with me, period. Yes, sure. You know, her, her, her parents, parents walked out and left her with me, mm -hmm. and she was just beside herself. Mm -hmm. And this time I couldn't run away. And so I said to her, it really feels terrible when your parents leave you with somebody that you don't know very well. And this is really a, a pretty bad situation. I can understand why you feel so bad. Mm -hmm. Everything changed. Yeah. At 18 months. Right? This 18 month old. Could, yeah. She might have been as much as two. Mm -hmm. So, but sensing, but sensing what's happened to the other person, um, is com almost a completely foreign thing to me. 
and it was just, it's just interesting. <laughs> but you but it's not so foreign because you gave examples of it that you did a beautiful job one and time. Well, that's something you have to you got to keep doing. It. Yeah, this is why we practice. This is why it's so difficult. It is, it's, a, it's a practice, unfortunately. But let's not worry about, thank you, Jan, for sharing that tenderness. And we don't have to worry about getting it right all the time. Like I said, if you find little ego running around in your zazen in life, don't be so hard on yourself. But when we actually are awake to it, that's facing our life. And that leads to love. Because we can't, we can't turn away from the mistakes we made or how we missed something. Uh, we can, but it's wears you out. <laughs> um, and I know we, we, we have a retreat happening and our kitchen is gone to make us a meal and we have some sauce and, um, so I think this is, is time for us to end for today. And I did want to just thank everyone so much for your presence and your deep engagement in the way. And I hope we continue to support each other forever.